Our scripture reading this morning from the book of the Psalms, reading Psalm 139. Psalm 139. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down sitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassed my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and hast laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men. For they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? Am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Our meditation this morning from Psalm 139 that we have read together, that we have just sung together, Psalm 139. There is nothing more practical for a Christian living than sound orthodoxy. Understanding doctrine with the heart defines duty. And right thinking determines right behavior. And Psalm 139 is a classic example of theology in practice. As it brings the deep doctrines and lofty truths about God to bear upon the issues of life. It is knowing and submitting to truth that is the ideal for Christian living. And the very structure of the psalm reflects the obedient submission to known truth. Notice the beginning declaration. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. That is a statement of propositional truth. But notice how the psalm ends. 
Search me, O God, and know my heart. Whether the psalmist prayed that prayer or not, God would search him and know him. But here I say is the linking between that which the psalmist knows to be true about God and now what he desires for his own life before God. That's not fatalism, but rather it is living faith. Knowing God aroused his sense of self-insufficiency And therefore he prays that God would lead him into the way everlasting. Because he knew God, and because he knew what God was like, he knew that there was nothing more important than for his being right with God. And that's my desire, it's my prayer today, that as we come to consider God's word together, that we might come to know more about him, And that what we know about him might fuel within our hearts that desire to be what we ought to be before him. The psalm occurs in four stanzas. There are four particular truths about God that are going to be brought to our attention. Four stanzas with four truths that show us how to factor God into life. Four stanzas and four truths that speak about God and me. And please, as I make reference today to me, I mean me, but I want you to be the me as well. What does our knowledge of God, how does our knowledge of God, affect and define how we live. The first stanza in verses 1 to 6 draw our attention to the omniscience of God. The omniscience of God is simply his all-knowing. He knows everything. The omniscience of God, and here is the proposition that flows from that, He knows me perfectly. The omniscience of God, he knows me perfectly. Omniscience, complete, perfect knowledge. And God's knowledge is what we refer to as being immediate. God's knowledge is immediate. And by that we simply mean that he knows all things right now. Children, have you ever had the feeling sometimes that your parents know everything? They know everything about you. Things that you thought perhaps you had done in secret, all of a sudden your parents seem to know. I recall even as a child, I maybe I should not make this confession, but I was not always a good boy. And there were times when I did things that I ought not to have done. And somehow, some way, my parents always found out about what I had done. But you see, there's the difference. My parents found out about what I had done. God never finds out anything. God never discovers anything. God's knowledge is right now. There is no way that we can be outside the sphere of God's knowledge. He knows everything right now. His knowledge is thorough. Even though his knowledge is immediate, the psalmist uses images here that intensify for us and emphasize for us The thoroughness, the absolute thoroughness of God's knowledge. He searches. Now, God doesn't search literally. But the language here, I say, intensifies and emphasizes for us the 
intensity with which God knows us. The idea of searching here is used for spying on a land. As spies would enter into a land, they would look here and they would look there, trying to discover where the places of danger were, where the places where they could make the inroads might be. The spies were thorough. Were is also used for uh, mining for precious treasures. Uh, you don't just kick over the dirt and there's a treasure. No, you dig for it and you're, you're, you're intensely searching for that treasure. This is the word that would be used for prospecting for precious metals. It's a word that also describes the investigation of issues. If there's going to be a legal suit uh, as the evidence is being searched for and uncovered. I say these are simply images that the psalmist is using to highlight for us and to emphasize for us the absolute thoroughness of God's knowledge. He knows the secrets of the heart. Jeremiah says that God searches out the reins. He knows our hearts. He knows our innermost being. Our acts, our thoughts, our motives. God knows it all. He searches me and he knows me. This is an intimate knowledge. Not just a knowledge of facts, but it's a discriminating knowledge. It is a discerning knowledge as God has a special knowledge, particularly for his people. He knows me as his own. Remember how the first psalm describes that? The Lord knows. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's not just saying that God is aware of the way of the righteous, but no, there is a special concern and there is a special interest, there's a special care that God is manifesting in the knowledge that he has, particularly of his people. He knows everything. He knows the way of the wicked as well, but there's a special way. And there is a unique way, and there is an intimate way, and there is a discerning and discriminating way in which God knows his own. Special application of the knowledge. So I say God's knowledge, his omniscience, is thorough. What we can see in verses 2 to 4, and you may want to keep your Bibles open as we walk our way through the text today, In verses 2 to 4, we see that God's knowledge is universally extensive. It is universally extensive. The language of inclusiveness in verse 2, you know my down-sitting and my uprising. You know the downs and the ups. You know the downs and the ups. And by using those two opposite expressions, the idea is that God knows everything. Not just when I'm down, not just when I'm up, but he knows everything that's taking place in between as well. There is absolutely nothing. There's no circumstance. There's no circumstance of my life that God does not know. He knows my thoughts. He knows my thoughts from afar. Thou art acquainted with all my ways. There's not a word, not a word uh, in my tongue that thou doesn't know. Verse verse 2 again, you understand my thought afar off. That's a temporal word. Not a spatial word, but a temporal word. The idea is that God God knows what we think before we know what we think. From distant times, from eternity, God knows. God knows our thoughts even before we know them ourselves. He compassed our path that he besets. He besets, and the idea of that word compass particularly is a word literally that means to sift or to winnow. Again, a discerning knowledge. God is not just a spectator, you see, but he is discerning and he's sifting. He's sifting with a knowledge of evaluation of all that we are doing, and a discriminating investigation as he compasses us, he sifts us, he winnows us where we are, where we stop being, are lying down. He's acquainted. He's acquainted with all of life's circumstances. Not a word, not a word of my tongue, but lo, thou dost know it all together. Every word, 
Not every word that is spoken, oh, he knows that, he hears that for sure. But every word that is spoken in public, every word that is spoken in private, every word that is spoken under my breath, every word that finds no vocalization through my mouth at all, but is nonetheless in my head, he knows. God's knowledge is absolutely and universally extensive. Even the tone, yeah, even the tone in which we speak, God discerns. His knowledge of us is universally extensive. A knowledge that is absolutely overwhelming. We see that in verses 5 and 6 particularly. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain unto it. It's a knowledge that controls. It's a knowledge that overpowers. The word beset has the idea of surrounding, of besieging, of of catching an ambush. It's not that God is out to get us, but again, another imagery here to express the thoroughness and the overwhelming nature of God's all-encompassing knowledge of his people. He lays his hands upon us in protection, control. I say God is not a spectator. God is not just observing what is happening in this scene of time. He's not sitting on bleachers, if I can put it in that way. God is not sitting on bleachers in heaven just observing what is taking place within his creation. No, he is sitting upon a throne. And on that throne, he knows all. And on that throne, he rules all. On that throne, he governs all. That's beyond our comprehension. It's high. It's like a fortress wall, the psalmist says. It's so high. These fortress walls that were designed for protection, as high as we look, I say this knowledge of infinite knowledge. We cannot begin to comprehend. You know, we say theologically that God is incomprehensible. God is incomprehensible. There's nothing that about us that can fully understand, that can fully understand the infinity of God. We are finite creatures. There are finite, we are finite. Our knowledge is finite. Whatever it is that you know, however much it is, however less it is, whatever it is that you know is, first of all, something that was learned. You discovered it. But how limited it is. But God's knowledge, God's knowledge is absolutely infinite. How do we even begin to comprehend what infinity is? Everything for us has beginning, it has anticipated end, but No beginning, no end. God knows everything right now. But let's personalize this. The omniscience of God, there's a doctrine. Tonight, you're going to be reading from the Westminster Larger Catechism on what is God. And you're going to have a whole list of perfections there that you're going to read about God. The all-knowing is one of those. It's a doctrine. It's truth. And in theology classes, we will teach students something about the doctrine of God's omniscience. And it's good to know that doctrine. But that doctrine has to affect our lives. It's one thing for me to say that God knows everything. Yeah, but can we personalize this? And God knows me. God knows you, God knows me, perfectly. Not a thing about me. Not a thing about me. Not a thing about you. That God does not know. Now that ought to generate reverence, shouldn't it? What's the application of that? This ought to generate reverence, a worshipful attitude toward him, A fear of him, the fear of God. As we know God, that produces a fear of God. And the part of 
the fear of God is the worship and the reverence that we express toward God. Ought to give us confidence that God is not blind. God is not oblivious to our troubles. Well, I say we live in troublous times. We live in dark days. On a corporate level. Some of you, some of us, are going through dark days individually. Times of uncertainty, seemingly. Times of difficulty, for sure. But God knows. God knows all of our troubles. So we can face the issues of life with that absolute confidence that God has not abandoned us. That God has not forsaken us. That God knows right where we are. God knows the fears of our heart. And God knows the joys of our heart. God knows us. Ought to give us confidence. It ought to generate care in our conduct. For if we live with the awareness. Yeah. If we live with the awareness that God is aware of us, that ought to direct our conduct. That ought to dictate our behavior. For there's nothing that we can do. There's no place that we can go. There's nothing that we can think. There's nothing that we can say. That God does not know. And the day will come. The day will come when we will stand before God. And give an account for all that we have done. All that we have said. All that we have thought. I've often thought that I wish sometimes, I wish sometimes that the only thing God knew about me was what people knew about me. If the only thing God knew about me was what people knew about me, there'd be a sigh of relief. Yeah. But no, God knows me perfectly. And in the light of that perfect knowledge, in the awareness of that perfect knowledge, that thorough, that discriminating, that extensive, that universal knowledge that God has of me, it ought to affect my life. It ought to give direction. It ought to give control. It ought to give me a compass by which so to live. The omniscience of God. He knows me perfectly. But we come to the second stanza. Verses 7 to 12. Where the focus now is upon the omnipresence of God. The omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere. There is no place. There is no place that God cannot be. I remember once, oh, years ago, when my oldest son was just a toddler. I was working at that time on my dissertation, actually, and He comes and he gets underneath my desk where I'm working and starts to horse around and I bring him up and I say, what are are you doing? And he says, I'm hiding. Well, who are you hiding from? I'm hiding from God. Kid's three, four years old maybe. So I bring him on my lap and I say, listen, Chad. You can't hide from God. God is a spirit. 
infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth that I gave him the catechism. And there was orthodoxy. There was orthodoxy. You understand you can't hide from God. Goes his way. The next thing I know, I hear him calling from his bedroom that God's not underneath his bed. Difficult for us to understand what it is that God is everywhere. A three-year-old had a hard time understanding that. And I have to say a 71-year-old has a hard time understanding that as well. The omnipresence of God. But here's the proposition. He is with me constantly. He is with me constantly. No spatial limitations. No spatial limitations. Infinite in relationship to space. I cannot be where God is not. And the psalmist draws our attention to the fact that God's presence is universal. Verse 8, if I send up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Psalmist is using these opposite expressions, again, to designate the totality. Reference here to heaven is not just talking about the abode of God. Hell here is not referring to the place of eternal punishment. That's not the idea of the word here. It's the word Sheol, perhaps you've heard before, often associated with that which is low. So here is just the contrast. No matter how high I go, no matter how low I go, God is there. I can go to the heights and God is there. I can go to the depths and God is there. I can go to the east or the west and God is there if I take the wings of the morning. That's the east. Or dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. That's the west. God's there. Contrast between light and darkness. Surely the darkness shall cover me. Even the night shall be light about me. The darkness doesn't hide from thee. The night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. All these contrasts. God is everywhere. God's presence is inescapable. Therefore, whither can I flee? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from my presence? The psalmist asked that question, not because he's looking for a way out of God's presence, not desiring to escape God's presence, on the contrary, but he is emphasizing that you can't escape the presence of God. Oh, maybe sometimes we desire to because of our misdeeds, but we cannot be where God is not. That ought to be comfort for us, shouldn't it? That ought to be a comfort for us as God's people. Here's the Emmanuel concept that goes from Genesis right through to the end of the Bible. God with us, reaching its climax in the incarnation, certainly, when God became flesh and dwelt among us. But the Emmanuel concept that God is with us is a scriptural truth from beginning to the end of the Bible. He never leaves us. And we're speaking here particularly, right, of the special presence that God manifests for his people. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. We cannot be where God is not. Generally, he's everywhere, but in a special way, he meets with his people. In a special way, he fellowships with his people. I say that's a comfort to know 
that being with God dispels the darkness. The darkness is light unto God. The darkness that so often is fearful to us is non-existent to him. Again, back, if I can give a personal illustration. Back when I was finishing my dissertation, I had a job at night. I was a, I was a night watchman working in the evening so I could work in the day. And as a night watchman, one of my assignments was this little art gallery museum. And in this museum, there were various artifacts of Near Eastern materials. And there was behind the glass a mannequin that was dressed in his desert garb, in his Bedouin garb. And I knew he was there. I knew he was there. But yet as I would make my rounds and all I had was a flashlight and a little key that I had to mark so that they knew that I checked all the posts, I'd walk in this one room and my flashlight would hit that Bedouin and it would scare me to death every time even though I knew he was there. There was something about the darkness, and so my pace. I would hit those keys as quickly as I could and get out of there as quickly as I could. But what does Psalm 23 say? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that is, though I walk, In the valley of deep darkness, I'll not fear, because thou art with me. And what amazes me the most about that particular statement in that well-known psalm is the pace. Yea, though I walk calmly, without fear, in that place of deep darkness. I say I have a tendency to run through those dark places, to get out of there as quickly as I can. But he walks. And it was the sense and it was the confidence that he had in the presence of God that enabled him to maintain that pace in the places of deep darkness. There's something about darkness that is frightening, There's something about darkness that can be intimidating because we can't see what's there. Our imaginations take place and and, and control. But the darkness is light to God. And he's with us. He's with us. So I say here's comfort when I think of the omnipresence of God, that he is with me constantly. It ought to give us comfort as we go through all of the stuff of life. Oh, some of you now are finding darkness. And you see the darkness and it engulfs you. It's fearful. It's unsettling. But can... We all have this confidence that even in the darkness we can be assured of Emmanuel, that God is with us. He knows me and he's with me. Comfort, but it's also a warning. It's also a warning then that every Sin that we commit 
is in his face. Every rebellion that we said is at the very foot of his throne. We think sometimes the darkness will hide us. Why is it that so much crime takes place in the darkness? Oh, because it hides the axe, but not with God. The darkness is light to God. What a sobering truth that is. If you're a believer, this ought to sober us up. That every sin that we commit, is in the very presence of God. Every sin that we commit, every transgression of the law that we become guilty of, is in the face of God. Let this truth overwhelm us. Let this, let the reality, let the reality of God's presence overwhelm us. And that presence is good. Look at verse 10. Even there, in that darkness, even there, if I'm so far away, this or that, high or low, even there, shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. God's presence with us is active. God's presence is not just a passive presence. It's an active presence. He grasps us. He holds us fast. He holds us in his right hand. Again, you think of an imagery. Have your child. And you're going through some crowd or you're going through some place that has potential dangers apparent, what do you do? Take that child by its hand and you grip the hand of that child and you lead that child through whatever the circumstances might be, giving safety and giving security, dispelling fear from that child. And so it is as we walk. So it is as we find ourselves walking in that valley of deep darkness. It's as though God takes us by the hand. He grips us and walks us along through that darkness. So I don't know where you are. All the circumstances that you may be going through, and I know some are going through some very dark times right now physically. Can you feel the hand of God? Not abandoning. Not forsaking. But a presence that is constant. Let us feel the hand of God. We're in his hands. And there's no better place for us to be than in the hand of God. You say it's tough time. Yeah, I know. But there's no better place for us to be than in the hand of God, the omnipresence of God. He is with me constantly. When we come to the third stanza, and the attention here is upon the omnificence of God. 
Now, that's a word we don't use very often. Omnificence. But it's a word that designates the creatorship. The creatorship of God. So it is the creatorship of God. The technical word here, the omnificence of God. And here's the proposition. He owns me completely. God is the creator. Began our service again today, making that confession that our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. God is the creator. And what creation reveals about God is profoundly significant. It reveals the uniqueness of God because only God creates. It is only God that has the power to create. No one else can. So creatorship speaks of the absolute power of God. But what he creates, he owns. He owns what he creates. And because he owns what he creates, he has the authority to govern and to use that creation according to his purpose. So it speaks of his sovereignty. The creatorship of God, the omnificence of God, he owns me completely. Total authority, total ownership, total right over me. Our design, how God made us, was in the mind of God. And it's interesting to me here that the psalmist is personalizing this creation. So often in our discussions about creation, we're looking at the big picture. God created the world in the space of six days literal six days, and I believe that, I defend that, and I teach that, and I, yeah, we believe in a literal six-day creation, that everything in this world God made. But it's one thing to look at the big picture, and here the psalmist now is personalizing this truth. God made all things for sure, but get this, God made me. God made me. God made you. Our design in the mind of God. He made me on purpose. He made me by design. And therefore the folly and the sin to question and to disagree with that purpose. We're all different. We're all different. How many individuals, how many people has God created? In the course of created world. All different. None the same. But every one of us image bearers. Every one of us in the image of God. Part of the common humanity but yet so different one from the other. But our design. Your design. In the mind of God. Look at verse 13. For thou hast possessed me. There's the ownership. My reins, my inner being. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. And that word cover more literally has the idea of weaving. God wove me. God wove me. In my mother's womb. It's a word that speaks of a very intricate work. My existence then, my existence then is not simply a biological act. My existence is not some kind of a chemical reaction. My existence is divine activity where with the intricate finger work of Almighty God. He's woven me. And he's woven you. 
in the mother's womb. Verse 15 compares it even to the curious weaving of the priestly garment. Look at verse 15. My substance was not hid from thee. When I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Now that's just a way of saying that it was in the earth. The lowest parts of the earth, by contrast here with heaven, is is the earth. It's not talking about down in some pit. It's just the earth. But I was curiously wrought. And, And that's the that's the word that describes the, the sewing together and the making of the high priestly garment. Remember that intricate and that exquisite garment of the high priest that was for beauty and for glory. That's how we are made. That's how God has made us. All the details working together. Evidencing his skill, his craftsmanship, if you will, as he has woven us together in our mother's womb. We're not here by chance. Not one of us here by chance. Here by the design of God. He has made us He has made me as he wants me to be. Here's the folly. Here's the folly of looking at someone else. And we can look at other people. And I can look at you and I can admire you. Because you're all image bearers. Many have talents and abilities that I don't have. And there's a sense in which I envy that. But yet the foolishness of wishing that I was something that I'm not, of wishing that I look like somebody, or no, no, God has made me as God has made me. With my abilities, with my talents, with my limitations, as he has you. The work of God. And the execution of that design is in the hand of God, that which he has purposed before its existence is now coming to accomplishment in time. Look at verse 16. Thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned when as Yet there was none of them. You can see in our Bibles there are several words in italics which are trying to smooth out. Can I give perhaps a more literal, what I would see to be a more literal translation of verse 16? All the days, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Every day of my life, every day of my life with all of its history predetermined, God has set the times. And again, this is not fatalism. This is not fatalism, well, whatever happens, happens. No, this is a confidence in an all-wise God who knows the end from the beginning, who has made me at this time in the way he has made me, For his glory. Our times. Are in his hands. You go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And you have all those times. A time for this. A time for that. A time for this. A time for that. A time to be born. A time to die. A time to weep. A time to laugh. A time. Times. Times. All these times are beautiful in his hands. They're appropriate. They're beautiful in his hands. God has set our times. Prosperity against adversity. That we might depend upon him. Ecclesiastes 7.14 In the day of prosperity rejoice. But in the day of adversity consider that God has set the one up against the other 
that we might find nothing after him. Times of our life or the circumstances, because God owns us, you see. He has made us, he owns us, and he disposes then of our lives according to his purpose. He takes us on different journeys. He takes us on different journeys. But that's the way he's made us. So the foolishness then of rebelling against the way God has made us, the foolishness of rebelling against the circumstances that God has brought into our paths. Now let us with praise and confidence stand in utter awe and amazement when we consider we're fearfully, wonderfully made. We can't comprehend it all. But God has made us and God owns us. And let's, I say let's personalize that. We can admire one another. We can see the image of God in one another. But we, that I am an image bearer. And God has made me the way he wanted me to be. All my limitations. Yeah, for his glory. My abilities for his glory. As it is for you. One final thought. One final focus as the psalm comes to an end. The attention now upon the righteousness of God. The holiness of God. And my proposition then is this. He demands my loyalty. He demands my loyalty. The righteousness of God that cannot tolerate the wicked. The inflexible holiness and righteousness of God that guarantees the destruction of the wicked. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. But because that is God's assessment and because that is God's declared action against the wicked, it is for those who are his people it is for those who know him to take sides with him. Our devotion to the Lord then is going to exclude our loyalty and our association with the wicked. To be overwhelmed with God means that we too then are going to have that intolerance towards sin, both in others and in ourselves. It's going to demand, then, a separation, a distinction that must be between the godly and the ungodly, a separation that must be between those who belong to God as his people, special people, and those who are the haters of God. And so the psalmist takes his place on God's side. Do not I hate those that hate thee. Yeah, I hate them with a perfect hatred. Sounds like tough language, and indeed it is. Indeed it is. But let's remember that the idea of hating, particularly in the scripture, is not so much an emotional term. It's not saying that we have a personal aversion or abhorrence of other people. But it's primarily, I say, 
a willful term. It's the idea of rejection. I reject those. I reject those that reject you. I separate them from those that have separated themselves from you. This is why, at the same time, we can take as the enemies of God and separate from them, but follow the admonition of Jesus to love our own enemies. Seems to be a contradiction there, doesn't there? To hate those that hate God, but yet we are told to love those who are our enemies and to do kindly to them. But the difference is between those that are, for whatever reason, in our own estimation, wronging us, And those that are against God, oh, we exercise and we demonstrate our kindness toward those that are our personal enemies. But those who are the enemies of God, there is a separation. Again, go back to Psalm 1. How does Psalm 1 begin? The blessedness of the man who separates from the sinner, who separates from the transgressor, who separates from the scoffer but takes his place with God. We, as believers, if you are a believer here today, you take your stand with God. You take your stance with God. And you reject those. Oh, and we live in a world, we live in a world where there are so many that are opposing God. But we must staunchly, and we must, We must not only defend the name of God, but I say we take sides with him. Having a desire to be delivered from our own wickedness. A desire for God to lead us in the way everlasting. We owe our loyalty to God. More I could say, but let me just close with this. How real is God in your life? How real is God in your life? Is part of our confession that we believe in God? I believe everyone here today would make that affirmation. Yes, I believe that God is real. That's our confession. And it's so easy sometimes to pride ourselves in our confession, to pride ourselves in our Reformed orthodoxy, and that's good. That's good. But let's cut through just the profession. Let's cut through just that affirmation of what we believe. And in your heart of hearts and in my heart of hearts, how real is God? Are we living day by day? Am I living day by day? Are you living day by day in the reality of God? It's always amazing to me how adherence of false religion tend to live according to what they believe. But so many professing Christians seem to live as though it's a Sunday matter. No. Let us. Let us who know him. Let us who know the truths about him have those truths affect our lives, and to start living. Can we live? Can I live? Can you live in the reality of God? To factor God in to life. That's the life that pleases him. To live as though God is real. Amen. O Lord.
May thy spirit come and take thy word, convincing us of its truth, enabling us to obey and to live in the reality of what thy word declares. Speak to us, O Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.